Hi, wonderful people. Welcome to Whole Architect, the podcast that focuses on conversations that reveal what makes the creative, professional, and personal lives of architects feel whole. Thank you for joining us. My name is Emma Bowers. I'm a third year student in the architectural design program at Stanford University. I first got interested in architecture when I was around 12 or 13. One day I visited a renovation of the Los Angeles Natural History Museum, and the renovation included this nature center that focused on the local flora and fauna of the area. And I remember just loving the way that the space promoted exploration, how both the inside of the nature center and the gardens gently guided the viewers toward new discoveries. The experience of discovery seemed so tied to the space, and I knew in that moment that I wanted to become an architect, somebody who could help produce these kind of experiences for people. This link between the architect, the space, and the public, the link between architecture and civics really, is brilliantly exemplified by Alison Brooks Architects, an architecture firm based in London. The firm's ethos centers on a deep understanding of the cultural context of sites, as well as building a connection with the people who will be using them. They've worked on many multifamily and mixed-use projects, as well as theaters, public art like The Smile at the 2016 London Design Festival, and educational projects like the new Cohen Quadrangle at Exeter College in Oxford. I am so incredibly fortunate to be able to speak with Alison herself, the Principal and Creative Director of Allison Brooks Architects. I am here with the incomparable Allison Brooks, um, Principal and Creative Director of Allison Brooks Architects. Allison, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. Emma. Great to meet Thank you. you. It's so nice to meet you as well. So just to get started, um, I am a university student. Most of the people who work on this podcast are university students, and I imagine most of our audience is architecture students or, or young people. So in that vein, I was wondering, how did you get started in architecture? What, what caused your interest in architecture? And how did you realize that interest through, through schooling or through, through other ways? Well, I... Um... I became kind of serious about architecture at, at around age 16. I think when I took a course in my high school, which was an architectural design and drafting course, which is kind of rare, I think, in most high schools, they don't offer an architectural design course in grade 10. But I was very lucky that my high school did. But before that, um, I think sort of growing up, I'd I'd been influenced quite heavily by my mother, I think, who was very interested in um, just the arts and in culture and in beautiful historic buildings. And I think she she used to just make uh, me and my two sisters sort of notice things. Like when we would drive, places she would say look at that you know beautiful barn you know on mm -hmm. the lip of that hill isn't that amazing or or look at this amazing arts and crafts house and she was just always pointing out 
mainly historic architecture that she thought was really beautiful and, and interesting. And so it, that kind of, I think that's one aspect of it, just noticing things or being encouraged to notice things that are beautiful or, or have layers of history attached to them. And this was in Southern Ontario, this was in Canada. This mm -hmm. was um, in a not very architecturally significant place. And I think also my instinct was also to be self-sufficient, to have my own career, to be in a profession where I wouldn't really need to rely on anybody that I could um, survive on my own. And I liked the fact that architecture was is broad. You know, it's it's history, it's science, it's it's art, it's a kind of generalist profession, which is a bit of an oxymoron because you should be an expert to be a professional, but it, it does have that breadth, which makes it sort of infinitely interesting for curious people. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating because one of the, one of the things that I've kind of found talking to a lot of people about how they got interested in architecture is that a lot of times it does happen kind of around those adolescent years I'm kind of getting influence from many different places. You were speaking about your mother and her influence on your kind of aesthetic appreciation. I was wondering um, who, who else has kind of influenced your artistic sensibilities? Who are some of the key players in, in making you who you are today? Well, God, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and you, you don't have to answer it completely, but. There's been quite a few. I mean, I was educated in the kind of modernist tradition. You know, I studied at University of Waterloo in the 80s. I started in 81. And, you know, that was at the moment when postmodernism or postmodern classicism was really, um, there, it was a kind of oppositional moment in architecture where there was the sort of diehard modernists who, knew their core and their me's and their alto and stuck to the the kind of ideology and the aesthetic of of high modernism and then there were the postmodernists and and so i it was kind of interesting to be you know studying at that time but it was kind of binary it, it's it's much better today when <laughs> there's just plurality and inclusivity in terms of what you are um, kind of able to explore in as an architecture student because there was just a kind of way too much emphasis on precedent, you know, and anytime you showed a project, it would be like, oh, well, this reminds me of, you know, this project by Khan or this project by Korb. Or, and there was just this constant kind of um, comparative, you know, comparing your work to the greats and and being, you know, more or less crucified <laughs> the whole time um, for not actually attaining that level, you know, as a student. And so I think the conversation has changed completely. And yeah, so, but in, inevitably I was influenced by, you know, the greats of, of mm -hmm. the 20th century and by the kind of modern project and probably the most influential would would have been OMA and and Ram and the the kind of the sort of ironic take on modernism and the kind of 
playfulness and the kind of, uh, you know, research and questioning and just interest in architecture as a kind of cultural project as much as anything else, you know, there's the artifact, but I think in the work of OMA, there's always another story. It's part of a bigger picture. That's a, that's, um, a kind of search, you know, search for meaning, search for, you know, making a point about the city. It's often self-referential. It's like a autodidactic project about, that's a critique of where we are in architecture. And, and I think, you know, that kind of criticality is something that I carry with me. And, and I think it's one of the reasons I, you, you know, projects, a lot of projects don't look like other projects that <laughs> I produce because I'm always on this quest to kind of prove myself wrong or, you know, <laughs> move in a, you know, in a new direction from the last project I, I did and to push it farther, push it in new directions. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, of new directions and just kind of the, the way that you um, approach your work, what are some of the main factors that inspire or energize your work? I, I know you've spoken a bit about the architects who have influenced your work, but are there other factors? I know a lot of your work is very community oriented and focused on the, the public who will be experiencing them. Is, is that where you get a lot of your inspiration? Just, just wondering about that. I think in a way, the more you evolve or you know, the more experience you have as an architect, I think memory comes into play more. For example, I studied in Rome in the fourth year of architecture school at University of Waterloo. Every class goes to Rome for four months mm -hmm. and you- That sounds wonderful. <laughs> work. I mean, it's, it's tough because it's like nonstop design studio projects. That's true. <laughs> you know, living the experience of Rome, of, of antiquity, you know, mm -hmm. fantastic lectures and amazing, you know, Baroque buildings and, you know, the whole thing is like the lesson of Rome and, and also of Italian cities, Italian hill towns, and it's part of the cultural history program at University of Waterloo. And, and, you know, you sort of absorb these things when you're studying, but you store them somewhere in your subconscious. And I think all of these lessons and these influences kind of come out in, in time and as part of that process. And so I think there's a combination of the immediate, like, you know, discovering new places, every, every new project is a new place, it's a new community, it's a new context, a new piece of city that needs help, that needs work. And, and so, you know, tons of inspiration and excitement just comes from discovering that new place and falling in love with it and, and seeing, seeing it with fresh eyes. And part of it comes from these kind of subconscious memories and this conversation that I think architects are always having with, with the experiences of their youth or with the experiences of your past. And they, you know, they start to emerge in your work. So I kind of feel like in the last sort of six, seven years, I've been drawing on those lessons of Rome a lot more than I was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, where I'm, I'm just more interested in the idea of, of mass, of permanence, of thickness, of um, kind of gravity and how gravity and the, and poche, how, how we can 
work in a in a um, sculptural way with mass. Whereas twenty years ago, I was much more interested in dematerialization and and sort of reducing architecture to the thinnest possible material, like one sheet of brass. How can you make mm -hmm. a house out of one sheet of brass that you cut and fold? And now I'm more interested in how do you start with like a mass of concrete and carve carve a building out of that. Though, you know, we evolve, I think. I think most architects evolve. Yeah, I was, I was actually gonna ask about that because your firm is celebrating 25 years this year. First of all, congratulations. Um, you, were, you were founded in 1996. I was wondering, I mean, you've spoken a bit about this, about the change in architecture pedagogy, how we are kind of shifting away from these huge Starkitect examples and, and kind of turning a little bit more to student work produced regardless of precedent. Um, and you've also spoken about how you yourself have evolved and, and your architectural approach. But I was wondering what, what else has changed in the way that you approach architecture? What else do you think has changed in the profession? And, and why do you think these changes have happened over the last 25 years? I mean, there, there really have been massive changes. Um, another um, sort of historic moment that I've been a part of is the transition from manual production of architecture to digital and computational mm -hmm. design, parametricism, you know, that whole shift. You know, when I started my practice, we had no computers, like the internet was barely happening and there was no email. I, I bought my first computer when, when I started my office. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, that, the shift to digitization has been huge. It changes the way we work. I think, you know, we can produce so much more, so much more quickly. I don't think that's necessarily better. I think the, the thing, the amazing thing about drawing, especially when you're drawing technical drawings or setting out drawings with complex geometry, if you're drawing it by hand, you know, you have to invest in like everything in that line that you draw. Yeah. You have to really believe in that line that you draw because you really don't want to rub it out. You really don't <laughs> want to have to restart the drawing. So I think what I, I think there's a bit of loss to the, of commitment to, you know, the gestures you make as a, as an architect we there's so much optioneering there's so many choices or you can you know do so many iterations in such a short period of time i think there's something kind of lost in that but i don't want to be like a nostalgic <laughs> person um but i do think that in a way I think architects believe less or young architects believe less in themselves, in their own instincts. Like, I think this is right. And I'm going to do this one thing. And that is my <laughs> mark. You know, that is my moment, my generative moment. And I am going to commit to that because we, we can just do so many different things so quickly. So I kind of miss that sort of commitment that, that you had when, uh, yeah pre pre digit digitalism which is <laughs> must seem like uh you know ancient history by now what else has changed i mean definitely it's great that that the profession has shifted to have more women represented 
I think it was 50-50 in the architecture school when I studied in my entry year, but it dropped off a lot over time, the number of mm -hmm. women in the class. And obviously the number of women who run their own practices is, is not huge, but it's yeah. growing like much, much better than it was 25 years ago. But I did feel that I kind of had a duty to start my own practice. Like, you know, we've, just got to do it. <laughs> Otherwise, we're never going to be. It's true. <laughs> we're never going to have that representation and that equality, that equal playing field in in the world of architecture, producing the built environment, unless we go out there and you know start your own practice or 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 a partnership with other women and kind of make make a mark. That's true. Representation really really does matter. Just speaking, going back to the digitization thing, it, it, I definitely do see that kind of impermanence of being able to just erase a line on an iPad and it, it was never there. Um, and I, I do definitely also see kind of how young architects do like to kind of equivocate on, on what they're doing. And um, so definitely I think confidence is a kind of a large factor. Um, confidence and, and also kind of believing that you know you, you as a person as an architect are an artist to a certain extent and what you produce that comes from you from your value system from your experiences from your your history your upbringing you know those are authentic moments in your creative career and actually clients love that they, they love it when you, you bring something to a project that speaks of that kind of authenticity that's quite personal. Of, of course, you have to argue, you know, the logic and the, you know, the strategy and the logic and the rationale and everything else. But if it's based in something that you really, you know, fundamentally believe in as something that belongs to you, it gives it so much more strength. And this is why I say subjectivity is actually our power, like in a way our, our superpower as, <laughs> as architects is to actually take a stand on something we believe in and really commit to it. And, and that is the, the kind of meaning that, that most clients or audiences can, can read and they can sense if you if you have that kind of deep down belief in, in what you're doing. I think that's, that's so important. And it ties in also, I think, with the role of empathy in architecture and, and the architect being kind of a channel for emotion. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that they're, what, what do you think the role of emotion in architecture should be or is? That's a tricky one because I, I was, I mean, I was educated and trained to not attach any kind of emotion yeah. or move away from subjectivity. Thought. Yeah, it's all about rationalism and being, you know, scientific and rigorous about what you're proposing. But I do think that that the emotional content in a way is related to the idea of beauty that I talk about and that I've been sort of talking about since I published that my book ideals mm -hmm. and ideas and I talk about beauty being one of the four ideals and and I think the reason beauty is important as a discursive topic in architecture is because it does relate to how people feel people feel beauty you don't really 
you know, you can be conscious of beauty in, intellectually, but often it's just something you feel that you can't really rationalize. And it can emerge from so many places like scientific formula can be beautiful or mm -hmm. a process can be beautiful or a space can be beautiful. And I think after sort of a hundred years of not being really allowed to talk about beauty or, or the, what constitutes beauty in architecture, I think that that door is also being opened gradually. And I think it's an important discussion because it's something that I think everybody, I think humans need, need beauty in their lives. And I think architecture failed failed on that on that count for many many years by putting um, sort of ideological and experimental processes before the sense of of beauty of comfort of well-being of of safety you know and in that and I think we're sort of reclaiming that territory and that's a good thing for sure. Mm -hmm. You use the phrase not being allowed to appreciate beauty. And, and I definitely get the sense that none of these transitions have been easy within architecture. What is the most difficult part of your job? Where do you feel the most pressure? Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of pressure in architecture <laughs> from, from uh, every direction. It's not an easy profession. Hmm it's sort of there's difficulties and there's pressure like there's difficulties that come with for example you know the shift to BIM and <laughs> Revit you know and I struggle there, with that too as a student <laughs> that, not that I do I don't use Revit but I see my teams working with it and I you know it's it's a very clunky tool it's very unsophisticated I think it generally comes with an ugliness factor built into it. Like there's, <laughs> there's, um, you can tell when buildings have been designed using Revit, you know, there's just yeah. a kind of and a clunkiness to them. You just know that there's a, there's a Revit family at work that's completely <laughs> destroyed any kind of poetic that the building is, might've had in its early design stages. So I think there's, you know, th that's a kind of difficulty in terms of like technical operations, it, it, but it is a tool, you know, we work with tools and those tools have an effect on mm -hmm. the way you design. And we tend to, you know, I still draw, I still sketch. I don't have enough. That's one of my biggest difficulties is having time to draw and to sketch and get out the tracing paper and draw because I can just draw things so much quicker than then somebody spending a week doing, you know, a hundred iterations and I can yeah. just draw something. <laughs> you just and you can kind of capture stuff. something too about the project. That's, yeah. You know, so that's, that's about sort of process. I mean, there are other difficult, like contracts are tough. Contracts are harder and harder. You know, they, they make architects take on so much more risk than we used to. None of them are standard contracts, at least in the UK. They're all bespoke and they're all written to basically put you in a position of severe, um, you know, weakness if mm -hmm. there's a claim. But, you know, there's also difficulty winning jobs, you know, competitions. I, I win nearly all my work through competitions. Every single commission is a competition in the UK. 
And the criteria for succeeding is getting harder and harder, you know, not just the design, not just the A1 boards, also a book, maybe 100 page book, also an interview, maybe a film, a video, you know, it's, it's become a, a form of kind of entertainment and performance that you have to be uh -huh. a kind of media personality to, to be successful at, um, you know, in design. And you sort of think, hmm, this, you know, architects aren't really trained to be, <laughs> you know, performers and entertainers. We're, yeah. we're meant to be thinkers, we're meant to, to design and draw, of course, you can think when you when you present. But I, you know, the showmanship is that doesn't really come naturally to me, and I, I, that's difficult. A lot is asked of architects, and so I think. Um, but what makes it worthwhile, of course, is that moment of joy when you're designing and you have a a really nice idea and it you know that surprise that delight in in design it's it's always there a kind mm -hmm. of gift uh, to compensate for for the struggles and you know working with my team I really enjoy working with the people that I've had with me for like over 10 years in some instances and they're great people so the camaraderie is great and, and it's sort of like when you study architecture, you go through all this pain in architecture school and in a way in practice, you, it's similar. You have teams and there's mm -hmm. the pain of winning the competition, producing the construction documents, but it's a shared experience and there's a very strong bond that develops there. It, it's a kind of fellowship, I think, that architects have, not just with people in your office, but with architects all over the world we have this kind of bond because we all we all suffer for our arts but that's mm -hmm. what that's what makes great art yeah speaking of teamwork and, and collaboration because I, I I also believe architecture is very much a team sport what is the process like of, of working so hard on a proposal for a commission with your team you come up with so many ideas and then to have that commission be rejected or they go with another proposal what what is that experience like I mean, I think it's it's all part of the process. I think it's it's fine. Like, of course, you want to win every competition, <laughs> but some competitions we do in a way as just R and D, you know, research and development. That if you want to expand your portfolio and move into other sectors, you you have to do competitions because nobody's going to come and ask you to to do theater if you've never done one before and right. the only way you can get that experience is by doing competition you have to practice yeah. so that research and development is a very important part of of what we do um, so there's I think there's no such thing as a wasted competition you always learn you always gain your skills and and you have a portfolio piece mm -hmm. I think that's that's a wonderful attitude because I think so so much of, of life in this digital era is focused on accomplishments and racking up achievements. And I think even losses can be achievements and, and they're all learning experiences. So I think that's, that's just a very important way of, of looking at things. Um, this is kind of a personal question um, and you don't have to answer it if you don't feel comfortable, but 
what is a big mistake that you feel you've made and how did you deal with it? I mean, I think the first mistake I made, <laughs> um, every architect makes loads of mistakes. You learn from your mistakes and you, you have to love, love your mistakes. <laughs> Probably was when I started my practice, I, I didn't get any kind of loan or any sort of business loan or any sort of financing to help me, you know, properly set up my office or employ certain people. And I think, I think that, you know, when you start a practice and you're just surviving from job to job, and then you're starting to go into overdraft and, you know, living month to month and clients don't pay. I mean, that is super tough. Mm -hmm. And I kind of look, look at other professions or other businesses where basically nobody starts a business without some kind of finance or loan or some kind of, you know, business environment where there's a little bit of padding that that helps you properly. It's that sort of catch 22 thing. If you don't have the right people and the right equipment, then you won't get the job. But if you and then if you so you have to keep trying to get the job and then you don't have the people to deliver it. And so you underperform and or it's the other way around. Like you have the right people, the fees are there, or you have a cushion, which means you can deliver the service, which means you can expand and maybe do a competition. So I think there was a kind of frugality <laughs> to, you know, the probably first 10 years of my practice that if I just known, like people go to the bank and they get business loans and it helps them, mm -hmm. ties you through that, that period. And I think that's part of architects training. Like we don't learn how to run businesses. I don't think yeah. at all. Like nobody tells you that you're an entrepreneur. And so what do entrepreneurs right. do? What do entrepreneurs in other, other sectors do when they start their business? They don't really explain that. That I, I think that's probably the, one of the biggest take lessons I would take away from when I started my practice and mm -hmm. and I guess the rest of it is just having the right number of people on a project and having you know making the fee work across the length of the project I don't I don't know what that it's like in the states but in the UK basically every project loses money in the site stages mm -hmm. because the you know the site goes on a lot longer than what's planned and it's very, very hard to get additional fees for, you know, any kind of prolongation of any, of any job. And the danger is if, if you under-resource a job, then, you know, there's big risks. So achieve getting that balance, right, of like the team size and the just making it, it work financially. In a way, architecture, I think, is the worst business model in... <laughs> you can imagine because it's like the, the more you care about a project and the more time you spend on it and the better you make it generally it means the less money you make so yeah it's, it's kind tough. of like the opposite of most other professions but then you know it's not a, it's not about the money it's um it's about just having you know having the team and the capacity within your team to produce the kind of work that you want to make you know that's the that's the goal what do you find rewarding 
I mean, there's there's nothing better than walking around a building site of a of a project that you've designed and nurtured from a competition or from a sketch to a competition scheme to being on site. You know that that's I think a really thrilling experience. And yeah, there there are now three projects in South Kilburn that are. ABA projects I've designed, and they're a mix of social housing and private housing, but they're they're quite big projects. They form, you know, the sides of streets, and they form part of a neighborhood now. And so, and they've been part of a process of kind of healing a piece of the city that was in a really bad state, the South Kilburn Estate, which was a kind of project. It wasn't a neighborhood. With every project that I've built there, there's been a kind of reintegration of of those estates into the wider fabric of London. So, and the people who have moved in, they just really love their homes. They're happy to have these, yeah, these really great flats. The projects were, the client was the council, like the, the mm-hmm. municipality. So they are, you know, they're true city building projects for the public you know it's regenerating the city and desegregating the city because i think cities are segregated architecturally as well as you know economically and and so you know the projects that really yeah probably are the most rewarding are are where families who've been living in temporary housing on the social rent waiting list for you know, sometimes six, seven years, single mothers or, you know, big families, and they are moving into my buildings and they're mm-hmm. just so happy. They just think they're on holiday. Like yeah. <laughs> it feels like they're on holiday when they, when they move in and um, it really changes their lives. And so I, I think that, you know, housing design has this kind of impact on people's day-to-day lives in a very direct way if you can change the way somebody feels about themselves about their their life their neighborhood and how society treats them or how um, the city provides for its citizens in in this kind of benign and generous way that actually works economically because it's a mix of social rent and private sale Mm -hmm. like I, I don't know what bigger impact you could have it's a, it's a little bit like designing hospitals, but the thing is hospitals, people move in, you know, they go in and hopefully they leave yeah. the field where people live 20 years or, you know, all their formative experiences can happen sort of from the lens of their home, you know, where they dwell. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a, is a hugely important role. I think that architects play in, in impacting people's lives and their life chances. I think that's so true. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think it's an exciting moment in architecture because of the changes, the transitions, the kind of reformation <laughs> that's been going on, like the, you know, the dogma that that sort of dominated architectural thinking and discourse and um, behaviors in the 20th century you know we're gradually freeing ourselves from all of that and i think you know i really enjoy 
teaching in this new environment. I teach at Etsam in Madrid and I taught at Harvard and the AA, you know, lots of really great schools where there's a kind of new sensibility around what what people what young people can kind of bring to the equation rather than having things kind of imposed from above and and also just the the fact that we i think we as a profession have become much better at listening mm-hmm. that now our role is to listen to communities and listen to of course clients but it's not just the client, it's the wider audience that's impacted by our work that we, we listen to now and we also draw inspiration from. And, and that, that kind of, that's probably the biggest task in a way of the profession going forward is to really break down all the barriers in, in our profession, you know, of race, of gender, of economic, group demographics so that there isn't this kind of sense of them and us we're all in this together we have a shared quest like we do have a common cause which is not just making the environment more beautiful but also rethinking how we make that environment so that we're not destroying the planet at the same time like yeah there's such a there's such a mission and and in a way that combined with the 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 kind of well there's the climate crisis there's the equity crisis there's a housing crisis there's you know there's a health crisis there's many crises that we are all feeling collectively as a society that i think and i hope will bring us together so that we're all we can all be seen as being on the same side and i think that will you know, we'll make better architecture, we'll make better cities. Alison, thank you so much for your time and for your words. Um, This conversation has been incredible. Thank you so much again for being here. You're really welcome. It was a pleasure. Whole Architect was created and produced by Amy Larimer, Nico Rucker, and Triana Hernandez, in association with the Department of Architectural Design at Stanford University. We invite you to join us for our next episode, a conversation between our very own Bryant Huang and the unparalleled Dr. Yasuhisa Toyota from Nagata Acoustics. See you next time, wonderful people.